Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. This morning we come to the final message in our message series, Unveiled Love, as we've been looking these last weeks to the pages of the Old Testament and finding Jesus there, Jesus who said the whole story has always been about me, Jesus who is the fullness of who the Father has always been. If you want to know who God is as Father, all you need is one glimpse into the eyes of Jesus. And so as we've been stepping into these stories of the Old Testament, we've seen Jesus, we've seen how it changes where our feet are in the journey that we have ahead. And I I don't know a better place to end our message series than this morning where we ask the question, how do we position our feet? How do we position our eyes and our heart and our hands in the midst of a broken world? In these few days that we get to live as ambassadors before we see our king in a place where he will wipe every tear from our eyes forever and ever. So at this final message of the series, I want to give you this big idea that we're going to unpack in the minutes ahead, and it's this. In the kingdom of God, we are free to lay down our wrongs, but we won't live free until we lay down our rights. In the kingdom of God, we are free to lay down our wrongs, but we won't live free until we lay down our rights. Now, one of the things I want you to know, and I want you to say it with me this morning, I want you to say, terms matter. Terms matter. So when I talk about laying down our rights, it's going to be very important how we define that this morning. Because as you're going to hear, there's a lot that I'm not saying. There's some places where God has actually called us in courageous love in stewardship, to not lay down, to not walk away, to not back down. So when we're talking about laying down your rights, I'm not talking about just rolling over in the name of this passive tolerance that says, oh, well, just anything that wants to go through is fine. We're just going to be the Christians that just love. That's not love. To tolerate someone is not to love them. As I've shared before, the tolerance movement is actually founded on self-preservation. It's not about the other person at all. It's the fact that no matter what I think you're doing or how reckless it might be in your life, I won't say anything so you'll like me and I'll like you and we can smile and wave at each other. When I'm talking about laying down our rights, I'm not talking about that. It's another picture entirely. We're going to unpack that as we go. In the same way, last week we talked about violence. And I I shared this statement. I said that God will never use violence 
to drive out violence. Terms matter. So the word violence I was talking about comes from the Old Testament. It wasn't my own definition. It's the word Hamas in the Old Testament. It shows up 60 times in the Old Testament and is linked continually with our enemy and our accuser. It's linked and tethered to pride. And what it means is violence, cruelty, and injustice. God will never use cruelty or injustice to drive out cruelty and injustice in the world. Now that said, it's important, and there's, there's not enough time to unpack all this, but i got to say something. Even if we looked at last week, there's a big difference between violence and self-sacrificial love that sometimes will have no choice but to use force. There's a difference. If there were a man at home with his family, and an armed intruder were to come in, between, because this is the question that I get asked when I say, God won't drive out violence with violence. They say, oh, you're a pacifist. I say, no, I'm the furthest thing from a pacifist because a pacifist defines himself by their relationship to war. A Christ follower defines himself by their relation to their creator. I don't want to be defined by a relationship to war one way or another. I'm not a pacifist. I'm a Christ follower. What does that mean? You may see a man that's a Christ follower that's at home, his wife and his children, and an armed intruder comes in, and there's a moment that man never wanted. Where an armed intruder comes with a weapon to his child's head. If that man in that moment were to take whatever force necessary in self-sacrificial love to risk his own life to save his child, and if that were to be lethal force, that is not the Old Testament's definition of violence. What happened there wasn't a cruelty or an injustice. In fact, I want to tell you, if it's a man of God, what's going to happen when everybody else applauds? His heart will be broken because it's the most unnatural thing on the planet for someone made in the image of God to have to take the life of someone made in the image of God. He's going to need the blood of the cross to comfort him and to come near him. But the reason we applaud those men and women as heroes is not because they've become people of violence, but because they were willing to stand in self-sacrificial love. So in this message, in the last message, in all of these, it's going to be very important that in an age of snapbite theology, where we just want to get these simple, pithy statements and sayings and go, oh, this means that, and that covers everything. No, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' whole point is that it's always going to come down to the matter and the attitude of our heart. Violence is an issue in the heart, and I want to promise you, my God has never used cruelty or injustice to further his kingdom. Praise God. In the same way, in the kingdom of God, we are free to lay down our wrongs. But we won't live free until we lay down our rights. One of the greatest frustrations that I have faced through the years, and maybe you can join me in this, is yearly when it comes to choosing a health care plan. I don't believe in purgatory, but if there was one, there'd be health care plan choices in the first day. <laughs> Or purgatory. I hate health care plans because of the fine print. You come in and it's the question of what's covered and what's still on you. They say this percentage, this is covered until you meet your deductible, but that, that's on you. We'll approve this procedure, but not that. This prescription is covered, but that one is out of our network. And I don't know if you've ever encountered what it's like to go to the doctor and then show up at your pharmacy and go to get it and you're waiting and you need the medication. They say, 
oh, we're sorry, your insurance company changed. We're no longer your pharmacy. They don't cover you anymore. That's out of network. If you were to get the medicine that you need today, that would be on you. Healthcare plans are tedious and they're a hassle. And I've got to tell you, there are a number of times that I have started to feel sick and I've told my wife that I refused to go to the doctor. And listen, I wasn't doing the male stubborn thing of like, I just don't feel like it or I'm not sick. No, it was the fact that I really needed to make sure it was needed because there was going to be a lot that was not covered. There was going to be a lot if I stepped into that, there was going to be a sacrifice left on me. Somebody hear me today. In the kingdom of God, you are free to lay down your wrongs because absolutely everything is covered. There is no addiction, no misstep, no thought, no attitude, no pre-existing condition that isn't covered by the blood of Jesus. The punishment that brought us peace was all on him. He's taken it upon his own shoulders. It says that he takes our sins and he separates them as far as the east is from the west, that he buried them in a grave, that he drowned them in a sea, and that you, if you are in Christ, have been washed clean forever and ever and ever. That's why the words, I am making all things new, should overwhelm us with joy. So the question we've got to ask this morning, the first one is this, what wrong in your life needs to go? Maybe as Pastor Aaron was sharing this word a minute ago, you saw something, you said, you know what, that's wrong. The way that I'm walking there, it's wrong. I want to tell you, in the kingdom of God, it's not on you anymore. You're free to lay down your wrongs. We're going to give a chance to do that in just a minute. But I want to focus on this second part. In the kingdom of God, we won't live free until we lay down our rights. The blood of Jesus forgives absolutely everything. And the blood of Jesus also requires absolutely everything. He buried the burdens of our sin. But listen, the cross also ended our entitlement. cross crucified our complaining. The cross won over whining. Today, the life that we're called to live is to be alive and awake and awestruck with joy that we're his and that we get to invite the world in these few days before we see him face to face. I think that's the point of 1 Peter chapter 2, and it says this about you and I. It says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He says, you're mine, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? So you could go to the ends of the earth and say to them, you're his too. That's our place in the story. See, that's when you and I and the church, that's when we're at our best. But when we forget that, we spend our time murmuring instead of on mission. We spend our time talking more about what we're against than who we're for. We spend our time obsessing over trinkets we don't yet have rather than the treasure we do. The saddest of all, the church 
no longer operates as a hospital for the sick, but a social club for the converted. We spend our time proving that we're right and protecting our rights instead of being consumed by the banner of righteousness that restoring love has come for every tribe and tongue and nation. His name is Jesus, and he's alive, and the whole world is invited to come because it's all been covered. So in this last week, we're going to step into the pages of the book of Jonah and look at what it means that we won't live free until we lay down our rights. Now, the book of Jonah is one of those books that I told you sometimes they make children's stories of Bible heroes that make me just irate. My number one least favorite is Samson. Number two just behind it is the book of Jonah. Because Jonah is continually made into this hero in the Bible. Or they just say, well, Jonah was afraid, and so he didn't go to the people of Nineveh, and we miss the fact that, again, God did not give the people in the Old Testament to be a hero or a villain. He gave them to be a mirror. There's something going on in Jonah's story that's supposed to show us us. And so Jonah's story begins this way. It says, the word of the Lord came to a prophet named Jonah. Now that word prophet, it actually could also be translated preacher. What it means is somebody who hears the voice of God and what they hear, they choose to tell others. That's why in the Old Testament, God often sent the prophets to the ends of the world. And so God shows up to Jonah and he tells him that in Nineveh is a nation of sons and daughters that have strayed far from their blueprint. So the father calls Jonah to go. And what you would see from the point God spoke, Nineveh is 500 miles east from Jonah. Tarshish, where he boarded, was 2,000 miles west. Jonah left little ambiguity in the picture when called by God to go to Nineveh, he went to the furthest known point of civilization in the opposite direction. If you've read the book of Jonah, you know this. It took a massive storm, a disastrous game of dice, a reckless attempt at a self-inflicted drowning, and three days eating sushi in the heart of the ocean <laughs> before Jonah finally reconsidered. Fish yacked him up on land, and then it says that once he was inside the city limits, Jonah boldly preached to the wayward a warning, that the sin they had sown into the ground was reaping a vine of their own destruction. And just then, the craziest thing happened. The Bible says that the people from the highest to the lowest all repented. It even says they threw sackcloth and ashes. That was their outward expression of lament on their animals. You've heard of goat yoga before. This was cow church, right? <laughs> Every man and woman and child weeping in the streets and taking personal responsibility and an earnest desire to change. One would think, I got to tell you, as a preacher, Jonah's a preacher, one would think if you preach a message and say, guess what, you need to repent and turn around. Your actions you've sown into the ground are reaping destruction. And everybody falls down and repents. One would think Jonah would be on cloud nine. And one would think wrong. The story says that enraged, 
Jonah stormed out of the city-wide altar call, shoving people out of his way as he made a beeline for the city gate. And once he was outside of the walls, it says what Jonah did in his anger is he cobbled together a shack where he would watch and wait for what would happen next. See, in this moment, Jonah thought to himself, maybe Jonah reasoned this was only lip service. He knew the people of Nineveh. He knew their history very well, as we'll come to see. He thought, maybe they just said it in the moment, but emotion will settle down as it does. Maybe Jonah had seen an American church service in the future in a prophetic vision. And he knew that many altar calls at 11 a.m. seemed null and void by 1230. So he thought, I just got to wait 90 minutes and see what's going to happen. If the shoe fits, kick it off. It's not yours to wear. said, perhaps they'll mess up. Maybe God will find reasonable cause to judge them. But as Jonah sat outside of the gate and he heard the cries evolve from lament to relief and then celebration, Jonah made a decision that he would rather die than see Nineveh live. Look at his words in Jonah chapter 4. He says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home. That's why I tried to stall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Little dramatic, Jonah. But don't miss this. Jonah knew when God called him that God was slow to anger and abounding in love. He was not afraid that the people would reject his message. He was terrified they'd repent. Jonah was the reluctant missionary who had not come inside the walls for a family reunion, but to witness a public execution. And now that the God who was called mercy exonerated them, Jonah was going to have no part of it. When we read Jonah's story as a mirror, we see this. Jonah's joy was anchored in his brother's fall. Before he rushed to vilify Jonah as a jerk, a little context might help. See, it turns out there were several lifetimes of bad blood between Israel and Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of a kingdom known as Assyria, one of Israel's most formidable enemies. And in the generations that had preceded this moment, Assyria had become a superpower that was feared by everybody for their cruelty the likes of which, I'll tell you, we haven't really seen in our lifetime. They burned cities with the children still inside. Assyria was known to impale their victims on stakes. They took their prisoners of war and beheaded them, chopped their hands off. They tore off lips, flayed victims alive, and then publicly displayed their skulls as a monument at the city gate of their dominance for any who would enter. You need to understand when the people of Nineveh fell in repentance, all Jonah could see was the faces of his people that had been enslaved and mistreated and murdered in the same dirt they now sat. Their cries for forgiveness were overshadowed by his own people's cries of suffering while they all laughed with no mercy. See, for a 
good prophet of the Lord for the people of God. Nineveh's fall would mark the end to a terrorist regime that had cost his people greatly. Nineveh falling would be a collective sigh of relief for mothers and fathers and the children in Israel. How in the world could he go home as the prophet who spared Nineveh? More than that, how could a God that was good at all allow this to happen? See, this is why Jonah was wrestling. He knew that the God of Israel was compassionate. That word in Hebrew, it it is intimately linked with a mother's nourishing and protective embrace of an infant child. And Jonah loved when that word was applied to Israel, but he couldn't fathom now that it was being applied to his enemies, that God had come close to them to nurture and protect them as well. At this moment, it was too much for Jonah. In fact, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, this was evil to Jonah with great evil. But yet, just a few days before this moment, it was Jonah who found himself sitting in the heart of the ocean on the brink of death, just endangering an entire crew worth of people by his disobedience, thanking God for his undeserved goodness. Look at this prayer Jonah just prayed a few days before. He said this, Jonah chapter 2, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. See, here's the truth. Jonah loved God's mercy as long as it was for people who acted and looked and sinned just like him. The story of Jonah illustrates just how easy it is for tribalism and triumphalism and racism to slip in undetected among the pews of the pious and for a new narrative to form. We're the good guys. We're God's people. We're on the side of what's right. And where we miss it, we need mercy. But they're the enemy, and we require justice. Please hear me. The human tendency to separate into us and them as we construct sacred shacks where we ask God to bless us and blast our enemies, is nothing new. The tragedy is how keenly we can see our brother's injustice while remaining blind to our own. Every place we find ourselves protesting God's grace to another, please hear me, we're building a shack outside of the walls of the kingdom The gated community of every Pharisee begins first with an ivory tower where we and our friends are admitted entrance while others are deemed too far from grace. I must say that again. The gated community of every Pharisee begins first with an ivory tower where we and our friends are admitted entrance while others are deemed too far from grace. So we look in Jonah's story, and this is the question, not what did Jonah do, but what did Jonah's God do? What did God do? Well, God did his signature move. God came low. When Jonah hardened his heart and ran, God came low and didn't judge, but he provided a storm to call his son back to shore. And when Jonah's pride led him not to obey, you understand, in the book of Jonah, he had the choice to go, this storm's because of me, just turn the ship around, it'll stop. He said, no, I'd rather die than obey God, and I'd rather kill all of you with me. 
When Jonah's pride led him to choose his death and their death, God came low and provided a fish to save him. And now as Jonah stewed outside the city in the scorching heat, God came low and it says he provided a leafy plant to cover Jonah and to allow him to sleep it off. Jonah had the Old Testament's first time out. It was like, just take a minute to yourself, Jonah. But the next day, when that plant suddenly withered without warning, Jonah again accused God of cruelty and injustice. And God came low. Story ends saying that God came and embraced his son, begging him to come back inside the gates where mercy reigned, and it ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know what Jonah chose. The story stays that way until an eerily similar plot shows up in the days of Jesus. There's a story Jesus tells that there was a man who had two sons. The older was the model kid, loyal and rule-following and hardworking. He was the one that was bragged about at social gatherings, was helpful and mature. He's the one that walked in and they said, you're just like your dad. The younger son, he was restless. I imagine from a young age, he was labeled a troublemaker. He pushed the boundaries. He was independent and stubborn. He probably had lots of notes home from his teachers and lots of time in the corner wearing that pointy hat. Finally, the coming of age, this younger son had had enough. The story, this parable of the prodigal son, says he asked his dad for his inheritance, and that's a problem. Because an inheritance is a particular kind of gift that you can only get when the giver exits the story. You have to understand what the son was actually saying. The younger son showed up and he said, Dad, I want you to understand that you and Mom and my brother in this house, you're all dead to me. I can't wait to shake the dust of you from my feet and never see you again. Now, if you'd give me my inheritance, my bags are packed and I have a life to live without you. The story says that the father, heartbroken, let his son leave. And for a while, this younger son lost himself in wild living and party after party. He denied his eyes, no pleasure he desired. He had a line of romantic pursuers a mile long and no shortage of friends ready to freeload along for the journey. But of everything he chased, nothing could satisfy the hunger of his heart. And before he knew it, it was all gone. He spent everything he had to buy a little worth, to lay hold of a little happiness, to barter for a little peace. When he left, he had bragged about all he was going to become, and now as he sat alone, his every thought was consumed with all he'd lost. He was empty and ashamed. And finally, the story says that he came to his senses and he remembered that he had a good dad, a warm bed, he had a home. And he told himself, I've messed up too much to ever be considered a son again. But if I follow the rules of the house, maybe, just maybe, I can come back as a servant. And the story says that this son set his eyes on home. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know, after all this time, there's only one way that can be true. See, this father adored his son, and he had been there all of this time from the moment he walked his son to the edge of the property line and said, I can't 
go any further than this. You've chosen to go outside of the walls where my mercy and my blessing can reign. And I'm going to allow you the choice of your own way and your own idols. But from that moment until the moment the son turned, the father had never left with his toes on the edge of the property line, just waiting for the slightest turn of his son's head to come home. That's all it took. There's a word in the Bible, repentance. It means to turn around. It means you've been living your life in a certain direction and suddenly you see all the things you've been chasing, all the things you've been holding, all the weapons that you've been wielding aren't going to satisfy and you drop them and you simply turn around. Not you pay it off, not you've made your bed and now you need to sleep in it. No, you just turn around and that's all it's ever going to take. It says at the moment the son turned, at the moment his head peeked up over the hills, that the father ran. And to us, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal. But this would have been scandalous for Jesus' audience. Because for a royal father and a man of standing, what they never did was run. Maybe that's not too scandalous. We don't really run for anything either, do we? (laughs) To run was seen as a great humiliation. It's a great embarrassment to your dignity. And you know what? This father didn't care. His son who had been lost, his son who had been dead to him was coming home. And he bridged the distance of every wayward second and he embraced him. And for many of us who've heard this story, I know the way that I've heard it, that's normally where the credits roll. We applaud, yay, in the kingdom of God, you're free to lay down all your wrongs. That's not the end of the story. See, there wasn't just one son that was running. In fact, the reason Jesus was telling the story to the Pharisees is the story of the prodigal son isn't about the younger brother at all. It's true, but it's about the older brother who positioned himself in the house. The story of the prodigal son is about the Jonas in the story. We see that when this son came home, And suddenly a party is being thrown. The clothes of sonship are being put on the younger son. He's being brought in. They're killing the fattened lamb. Says that the older son would have nothing to do with it. He exploded in anger. He wouldn't even call his brother by name. He railed into his dad and he said, I've been here all this time slaving for you. And now this son of yours comes home. And you let him. And he went outside the property line, outside the walls of the city. And he refused to move. Does that sound familiar? Just like in the story of Jonah, the father came to the younger son outside the walls of the city. And he said this, son, I adore you. And all I have is yours. My mercy is yours but it's his too. And just like the book of Jonah, the story of the prodigal son ends on a cliffhanger with the good son outside of the city while life with God is taking place within her walls. And the reason these stories were written were for sons and daughters like you and me that like to follow the rules to ask the question, where will you choose to live? Please hear me. In the kingdom of God, you are free to lay down your wrongs. But you won't live free. 
until you lay down your rights. The truth is we've been both nations, haven't we? We've been the oppressor and the oppressed. We've been the repenting and we've been the self-righteous. We've been both prodigal sons, the reckless and the religious. And praise God, the father wants both of his kids home. So the first question is, where do we need to lay down our wrongs? But listen to me. The second question is, where do we need to lay down our rights? These closing minutes, I really want us not just to take a lesson and go, wow, that was interesting. I want to take two activations that move our feet on earth today. The first is this. How do we lay down our rights? You've got to trade I deserve for I delight. Trade I deserve for I delight. There's this problem with grace. It's too easy to move past the excitement of grace to the entitlement for grace. See, when we first see that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that his perfect love cast out fear, we're filled with awe, aren't we? Can you remember the first moment that you saw that God didn't just love you, but he also liked you? Can you remember the first moment that you thought, this is my big dirty secret. I just want to tell you this. This isn't even in my message, but it was a life-changing moment for me. I believe honor is the language of, of the kingdom of heaven, and I believe this is a good moment to share it. I remember the first moment for me. At 18 years old, I'd just been in the church a year. I had grown up under a whole lifetime of fear and, and things that my family, they, they didn't instill any of that. But I had this shame-based, fear-based view of God. And I'd heard this message that shook me that said, you can really lay down all your wrongs. And I was at this summer camp with this hyped up, way too much sugar, overgrown kid of a youth pastor named Chris Thomas. <laughs> and I found myself at a moment after lights out where I'd asked to meet with him. We sat in one of those rented vans. If you've ever been to a summer camp, you know the rented van. And I knew it was my moment. See, I, I wanted to dare to believe that God could forgive all my wrongs, but I didn't know what the repercussions would be if, if I told all of you people, people within the church, what I was really wrestling with. I unloaded to my youth pastor years of addiction, years of a pattern I couldn't get myself free from, from this on again, off again, hot then cold relationship with Jesus and all the shame and all the guilt. And I got to tell you, when I told him, I was pretty sure he was going to send me home as a faker, as a charlatan. You know, he was the first voice that I can remember that really saw me. That said, in the kingdom of God, you're free to lay down all of your wrongs. You're welcome here, son. From that moment, he walked with me and said, I'm going to walk with you accountability until we see freedom. That was the way that my youth pastor became my best friend best man in my wedding, and the village idiot I love to give a hard time all the time. <laughs> in the kingdom of God, you're free to lay down your wrongs. Can you remember the first moment that you saw the kindness of God and you were filled with awe? Here's the problem. Way too many followers of Christ are not living in awe today. They're living in anger. Look at Christ followers. 
We're angry at the government. We're angry at our coworkers. We're angry at our family members. We're angry at, at our acquaintances. We're angry about politics. We're angry at our circumstances. And we're angry at God. Why? Because we moved from the excitement of grace to a spirit of entitlement. I would ask this question to us honestly. Has the kindness of God to us decreased? Of course not. I have a theory. It's one that I've seen proven to be true as I've visited parts of the world like Haiti and Nigeria and Israel. My theory is the kindness of God has become so normal for us that we functionally forget the billions of undeserved pursuits of his kindness and love that sustain us every day. That it's become so normal, so expected, we're not surprised by it anymore. We have a problem where we've lost being captivated and we've taken to complaining. We've shifted from talking about what I delight in to what I deserve and more importantly, what they deserve. Can I give you a truth this morning? None of us want what we deserve. We need to return to delight. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament says this, Matthew 13, 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered it up and then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and he bought the field. What does it mean? It means that my only requirement to be satisfied today is him and praise God, he's already mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. For somebody this morning, if you want to know what the step is you need to take, you need to walk back into the pages of Revelation where it says you've lost your first love. You've lost the joy of your salvation. Return and do what you did at first. Go back to when you were grateful and awake to every act of God's kindness. But more than that, go back to the place where you're recaptured just being his. Isn't it amazing just to be his? We've got to trade I demand for I delight. There's one more, and it's this. If we want to lay down our rights, we've got to retire as spiritual referees and live to rescue spiritual refugees. We've got to retire as spiritual referees and live to rescue spiritual refugees. This is what I mean. Christian is referee. It means that you see the Bible as a rule book. And your job is to watch everybody else. And you're ready every moment to throw the flag and to blow the whistle and to give your ruling on their field. For lots of Christians, sadly, we become instant replay experts. We see everything else going on in the world. We're like, hey, I'm just going to go under the hood for a minute here, and I'm going to give my analysis of what the whole world is doing. I'm just going to walk through and I'm going to tell where you're wrong, where you're wrong, where you're wrong. 15-yard penalty over here, unnecessary roughness there. And I want to tell you, living as a referee is easy and completely devoid of compassion. Most importantly, it's evidence that we're presently forgetting the grace that holds us. See, I don't want to forget the grace that holds me. In contrast, a refugee. Refugees are people who are wandering. They've lost their way. They're in duress, and they're longing for some place to call home. St. Augustine said our hearts are restless, and they will be restless until they find them in you, O oh God. 
When we see the whole world this way, we'll understand this, that some refugees are kind and others are calloused, but all of them need to come home. And the call of Christianity is to retire your whistle and go get a searchlight. My wife and I just celebrated our 20-year anniversary this month. And we celebrated this past week by going on a cruise. So I ended here last week, and I don't know if anybody, sometimes it's good just to tell on yourself. But it was the type of deal that I was so passionate about what we needed to share last week, and I felt it was the time that they told us we had to be in Fort Lauderdale by 3.30. And so everybody's like, you can't preach that morning. And I was like, I got to preach that morning. So we knew that the way we needed to end the service was in worship. So I talked. Pastor Cindy was on it. She's like, I have prayed, and that, that ship will not leave the port. I was like, amen, Jesus. <laughs> so if you happen to see last week, I was like, Pastor Cindy is going to lead us now in this time of reflection. Pastor Cindy? And I booked it. And I left to Fort Lauderdale until we got back yesterday before I got to come home and see my son, uh, Josiah, and Graham Spiegel as they led in our overflow laughs last night. Um, Amazing. Four comedians that are very well-renowned and respected that have taken these boys under their wing and have continued. They say they want to continue to pour into them. They want to be able to give them endorsements and show them how to walk. So we had to get back for that. But we went on this anniversary cruise. And I got to tell you, it was beautiful, except for a few really annoying people. There was the, the nicely dressed college guy out on the running track who wasn't running when I went every day to go running. No, he was walking trying to impress some girl and refused to move, even through the several laps that I passed him. And I kept hearing as I was coming up behind him the words of Sensei Kreese, sweep the leg. And I was like, no, don't do it. There was that girl on the cruise ship that had an opinion about everything and decided to fill every minute of our four-hour excursion with an obvious statement, an obscure question, or a questionable action. And by the end of it, I was like, just leave me in the jungle. I volunteer as tribute, right? <laughs> Actually, it's worse than that. I'd gone up in a lighthouse, and she, was, she found Jill, who was the most compassionate person in the world, and was telling Jill every possible thing that could be coming on, and I was like, oh my gosh, she's going again. And I was coming down toward my wife, and she's down here, and they're talking, and I walked toward her, and I saw it, I just looked at Jill, and I was like, mm-mm. And I just, I did. And I was like, I gotta go see the beach. I just, come with me if you will. This is not my burden to carry right now. I think about the dude the last night of our cruise that was completely impossible to please. And it's crazy. These three people I'm telling you about, they kept showing up everywhere in the cruise, like God was trying to teach me something. (laughs) This guy got a critical attitude about the waiter and complained loudly for 30 minutes straight about nothing. Called for the manager. I felt like his parent. I was like, it's time to go to your room, right? It's time. You You need some time. And in the midst of this, God asked me a question one morning. He said, if I gave you the capacity where you could personally get to know every person on this 5,000-person cruise, would you find somebody here who's presently doing something that offends some core value you hold? I said, God, clearly. He said, could you lay down your life for them? And I stopped in that moment, and I I said with a sincere heart, this is after running, this is after, you know, college boy, and He said, could you lay down your life for them? And I said, Lord, I could if you told me to because I just want to follow you. And without pause, he said this, I did tell you to. And suddenly, 
Scriptures flooded my mind. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, but considers the needs of others above their own. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Outdo one another in showing honor. Greater love has no man than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. And he said to me, you already laid down your life for me. If you die for them, what could it look like for you to compassionately live with them? Second to last chapter of the Bible sums it up this way. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In the kingdom of God, we are all free to lay down our wrongs. But hear me, children of God, it is time to lay down our rights. Now, I want to be clear. I said that terms matter. When I talk about our rights, I'm not talking about living lives where we compromise or water down the truth that sets people free. I'm not saying that you lay down the right and allow a demonic agendas to do violence to people you love. No, Jonah went into the walls and he preached a message of repentance. We're called to be a steward of the kingdom of God and the things that lead to life and not to death and to do so boldly. But like everything, this comes down to an attitude of the heart. It's saying, because Jesus has become the delight of my heart, I choose to lay down the right to have enemies anymore. I got to tell you, in my life, there are some people who have really hurt me. Like you, there are a lot of tears I've cried. But I lay down the right to stay offended. I lay down the right to gossip. I lay down the right to live in bitterness. In the kingdom of God, I choose to lay down the right for my reputation, for all people to like me. And I've got to tell you, listen, in the years since, I, I have really found the message of my life and shared it boldly, that God's love has come for all people. I've got to tell you, the more boldly I have carried the love of God, the more I have found my heart broken by people who in his name have misjudged me, who have counted me out, and yes, in a few instances, have even vilified me. I lay down the right to let my love grow cold. I won't stop loving, and I won't stop obeying. In the kingdom of God, I lay down my right for comfort, my right for entertainment, my right for things going my way, my right for understanding the ways of God. I lay down the right to get angry at God when things don't go according to my prayers. I lay down the right for my security of the number of days I get here on this earth, and I lay down the right to my stuff. Most importantly, in the kingdom of God, it's time that I lay down the right of my service. See, I'll no longer say I'll only pour myself out to people who will appreciate me. No, I've been called to the whole world because there are a lot, lots of displaced sons and daughters in a shipwreck of life and the light of the world saved me and placed his light in me so I will choose to be a lighthouse even when it's really hard. In the kingdom of God, you're free to lay down your wrongs, but we won't live free until we lay down our rights. So I got to close asking this question this morning. Who's the other brother in your life? Who's the person that you have a hard time giving grace to? 
Who are those you're prone to be annoyed by or offended by? Those that you'll judge? Those that you're outside of the walls from? There's a separation and a judgment. Maybe it's a person who hurts you. Or maybe it's a group of people that you no longer see by their faces, but you see according to their stances. See this group of people as a race or a political stance or an addict or a certain struggle or an attitude or the LGBTQ community. My question is, who is the other brother? And where is it time to lay down your rights so that you'd go as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread? In the kingdom of God, we're free to lay down our wrongs, but we won't live free until we lay down our rights. Would you stand with me? And I'm just going to ask as you stand, if you take a moment, close your eyes and just lay your hand upon your heart. We're just going to ask a few questions before the Lord right now. The first question I want to ask is this. Where have you lost all? Where is it in your life that your story looks more like angst and anger than it looks like all? Where is it that you've moved from an excitement about grace to, if you're being honest, form of entitlement? Where you don't say it, but you expect things to go your way. You expect people to like you, to see the best in you, to give you grace. You expect life to work out. In fact, you came to believe that if you follow God's rule, you have a contract that here on this earth, he makes things go easy for you. You get the fast pass to the front of the line. And life hasn't worked out that way. And you find yourself this morning somewhere you're jaded. Please hear me. What you need is not a change in your circumstance. What you need is a change in your demands. Where is it time this morning to lay down your demands of Jesus and? And to change it to say, Jesus, what I need is you, period. Maybe this morning you're in a place where you need an anointing to rediscover the joy of your salvation. And I want to say if that's you, it's a gift of grace. It's not something you could churn up on your own. And in the cross, it's yours. So I'm going to ask if that's you. You say, that's me. I'm filled with angst. I'm filled with anxiety. And I want to be filled with awe. I'm going to ask with one hand on your heart that you just lift the other in the air and that you would just pray this. Say, Father, I'm sorry. You have been so good to me. And in some areas, I've become so blind. I ask like Paul that you open my eyes that I could see your goodness in the land of the living. I will have no more recreation without reflection. I want to see you everywhere in everything. I lay down my entitlement. I don't deserve anything, but you've given me everything. I lay down my complaining. I lay down my apathy, and I remind my soul that all I need is you. And forever, Jesus, I have you. No matter what bend comes around the corner, no matter what hill we have to climb or what valley I descend into, I have you, and it's enough. 
Father, for each of these, I ask right now that you would release an anointing of the joy of our salvation. Would you just breathe it in? You don't earn it, you just receive it. Lord, we receive the joy of our salvation. We receive eyes to see. We receive gratitude. I ask that you meet us in a billion ways. Lord, you painted the sunrise just so we'd see it. Would you open our eyes to get out of our phones and out of our texting and out of our multitasking to see your kindness in every second? Second question I want to ask is this. Where is it time to retire as a spiritual referee? What person in your life right now or what group of people do you need to break prejudice or a hardness of your heart or resistance? And maybe it's somebody that's really hurt you and you're struggling to forgive. I'm going to ask hand on your heart, you would just say this. Father, that person, they're yours. And they don't know it, but their heart is crying out for you. Their heart is restless because they want and need home in you. And so for every destructive thing they've done to me, I won't be a pawn on this chessboard anymore. Jesus, I forgive them and I release them to you. And I remind my soul that you have always been my provider. Return everything they've stolen. I choose to look to you. I look to the hills to you alone, my joy and my salvation. And I ask in this moment, Father, even where they've done terrible things to me, to those you love, I ask, Father, that you come inside the walls of their city and you call them home. And any part you have for me to play in the journey, I'm all in. I ask right now, Jesus, for your children, for an anointing to not be annoyed, to be overwhelmed with love. Father, may we live in a way of your love that won't back down, that won't grow cold, that won't apologize, that won't turn away, that won't get jaded. May we run in love after the whole world until every enemy becomes your friend. Father, it's our joy right now to lay down our wrongs. But we choose to find life as we lay down our rights. You are enough. Would you just stay here a minute and just let him minister to your heart? there's anything you need to lay down, don't think I'm going to process it later. I'm going to figure it out. No, you can't figure it out. You can't fix it, but you can lay it down. He sees you. He knows you. He has you. If there's any weight or burden you've been carrying, would you be like me at 18 years old there in a van saying, I can't figure it out anymore and I'm just going to bring it out in the open. I'm just going to lay it down here. Jesus, I lay down my wrongs. Jesus, I lay down my rights. And Jesus, I lift my head. You, light of the world, have filled me with your light, so I'll be a lighthouse for you all the days of my life. Father, lastly, I just ask for each person here that you fill us with the overwhelming magnitude of your joy. Would you just right now, hand on your heart, I receive the joy of the Lord.
Jesus, come and be our strength. If you agree with that, say amen.